church in one place. It's good to see you. That's so good. That's so great. Good morning. Um, yeah, church is gathered, not fractured. We're able to gather as one. And so we're really thankful for that. Great to see so many of you out here this morning in light of even school holidays. And so I know that's your heart to want to gather together and we do that. And you know, I've had so many people, more than a handful of people from outside of our church in our community in in various places um, say, hey, you guys, you guys worked really hard to keep meeting. And um, while that seems encouraging and it kind of is, it it's kind of sad too, uh, because that's which what the church does. The church meets. And so people are watching. They watch us meet. And uh, part of that happening was because you all worked so hard uh, to make, uh, make that happen. Make adjustments in your life, in your schedule, to serve with a double portion. And... So thank you uh, for making that possible. It's really important for the people of God to meet. And we did that. We kept meeting and here we are. And so thank you very much. Um, The Lord, uh, I trust, is pleased by our feeble efforts. David read an important passage of scripture there before from 1 Peter. And the church in meeting in gathering and assembling has a purpose. And there was a very important purpose that David read for us just before. Speaking of the church as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. So that, that's the purpose. So that you, that's plural, the church, may proclaim... The excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have many an opportunity to do that. We do that uh, as a church gathered corporately. We do that as we scatter as individuals. And then we do that as things that are calendar items on our church calendar. And one of those is sports camp. Sports camp's coming up. We're really grateful for sports camp. Sports camp really is where we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, the excellencies of Christ. Uh, There'll be 300 or so youth and young adults who will descend on this campus at the end of October. And we have our very own Jeremy Dempsey, gifted, called uh, preacher who will preach the gospel And that is the instrumental means by which God continues to build his church. And so if you want to be a part of that, there are many ways that you can be involved in sports camp. And so today out there in the conservatory, there's a sign-up form. Make yourself available if that's what the Lord lays on your heart to be part of the proclamation of the excellencies of him to a lost group of youth that come from all over our nation, South Island as well, North Island. And so I say that as a little bit of a rev up to a very crucial ministry in our church. Well, we turn our attention this morning back again to the Gospel of John. And this morning we find ourselves in the final bend of chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me there to John chapter 2, rather than being this final bend of chapter 2, it's more of a bridge really. It's a bridge, this passage that we'll look at this morning, between what just occurred in the temple, you recall, in the temple we looked at it last time we're in John, where Jesus exercised and evidenced his authority and lordship over worship when he cleared the temple of all those who had made worship of God all about comfort and ease and just whatever was most expedient to them. And then proceeded to illustrate that He is the true and greater temple which will rise again and become the one through whom all true worship occurs. That is, 
you simply cannot get to God the Father in true worship unless it is through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so between the profaning of the worship in the temple by the religious folk of the day, because often religious folk profane true worship, between that and then the encounter that Jesus has with the religious teacher of the day, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which we'll read of in just a moment. Between that, between those two things, you have our passage this morning, verses 23 to 25 of John chapter 2. They're intriguing verses. They are not, at least the opening ones there. This is all not a theme of what we would consider to be the happiest or most positive of verses. But we know, don't we, that Christian doctrine, Christian living is not always dealing with feel-good matters. And at least a good chunk of what we look at today is not really a feel-good theme. But it's God's Word. He speaks to us through His Word. And so where His Word goes, we go. And so let's read, beginning in verse 23 of John chapter 2. For the sake of time, we now won't read all the way through to the end of John chapter 3, but I want you to know that that's where we're heading. Read John chapter 3 in your own time this week, because that's where we're heading. But let's just read our verses 23 to 25 this morning. Now, when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. Observing his signs which he was doing. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father we come before you acknowledging that this is holy ground. Your holy word. Your people gathered together partaking in holy worship of the one true and living God. And so, Father, we ask that you would be pleased with all that we do here, that you would aid us by your Spirit. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that he might move mightily among us, ministering, convicting, guiding, affirming, doing his great work and ministry among us this morning. Be with us, Lord, as we hear your word. Be with us as we sit under your word. Be with me as I preach your word. And Lord, we ask that you'd get all the glory through all things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you've heard of the name D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an old evangelist and he recounts a night when he was preaching in Philadelphia. That would have been in the mid to late 1800s, so a long time ago. And there was a lady just staring at him. Sometimes some of you just stare at me and it's good. Sometimes some of you nod off and that's not good. <laughs> Two types of preachers in this world. One's filled with the Holy Spirit full of unction and others that are anesthetists and they just put people to sleep. This lady was just staring at him as he preached and she was staring in such a way, D.L. said, that it was like she was just taking in every word. After the sermon, Moody asked this lady, hey, are you a Christian? And she answered, no, no. No, I wish I was. I've been seeking Jesus for three years, she said. There must be some mistake, said Moody. She looked at him very strangely and said, don't you believe me? Well, no doubt you thought you were seeking Jesus, Moody replied. But it doesn't take an anxious sinner three years to meet a willing saviour. What am I to do then, she said. Moody said, the problem is you are trying to do something. Instead, you simply must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lady replied, oh, I am so sick and tired of that word. Believe, believe, believe. I don't know what it is. Well, Moody said, we'll change the word to trust. She asked, so if I say I'll trust him, will he save me? No, I'm not saying that. You may say a thousand things, 
But he will save you if you do trust him. Well, I do trust him, she said. But I don't feel any better. Ah, I've got it now, exclaimed Moody. You've been looking for feelings for three years instead of Jesus. The title of the message this morning is False Faith. False Faith. That encounter with D.L. Moody, with this particular lady, illustrates the heartbeat of what it means to both not possess Jesus, as was her case, and and to falsely profess Christ, as is the case of so many... So many in the case where there is just something else in the way, something blocking the main artery, something blocking the main arterial. You know, for the altogether pagan, one who has no interest in the things of God at all, that is just disregard and rebellion and cosmic treason against the creator that earns them the wages of sin, which equals death. But for the religious who profess faith, but possess a faith that is phony, it is that there is something in the way. Whether a reliance upon subjective feelings, like this lady, to affirm salvation, or, as with others, a willful hypocrisy, a a hypocrisy that is deceitful, Because while they profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, shiny on the outside, dead and corrupt on the inside, they live in ongoing habitual sin. At the core though, both are one and the same. Because all unbelief, regardless if it's just pagan, secular, willful unbelief, or whether it is a religious cloaked belief, all have at its heartbeat hostility to Christ. We do have many false believers, both written of in Scripture and in the church at large. People who profess Christ and yet do not possess Christ due to a failure, for the most part, to rise above subjective feelings and experiences as grounds for their salvation, as the basis for their salvation, and to simply rest in the objective work of Jesus Christ on their behalf and trust in Him for salvation. We'll see all of this playing out in our passage this morning. In verses 23 to 25 of John chapter 2, we'll see two truths, one solemn and one sweet. So that we can see with perhaps even fresh eyes the severity of unbelief and the satisfactory character and essence of our Savior. I've broken these two passages down into two very simple headings for you. We'll see number one, an inadequate faith in verses 23 to the very beginning of verse 24, an inadequate faith. And then second, an adequate Savior in the second half of verse 24 through to the end of verse 25. And as we begin to work our way through our passage this morning, there are a couple of things to set at the forefront of our mind. First, by way of reminder, the purpose of this gospel. The purpose of this gospel. John tells us, doesn't he, why he wrote this book. John 20 verse 31, these have been written, these things have been written so that you might believe. And in believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you might have life in His name. John has an evangelistic purpose, we know that. It is wedded with an experiential purpose. That is to say, believe, see the glory of God, and then keep on believing as you keep on beholding the glory of God. And so with a desire for true faith, John, at the outset of his gospel, he wants true faith to be caused and birthed in the life of his hearers and his readers. And so, knowing that, at the very outset of his gospel, he needs to show us false faith. And he does that here. And as I've said before, we also need to consider this gospel 
through the lens of the prologue. The prologue is the first 18 verses, which serve, you recall, as a compact and compressed form of this entire gospel. Everything that is in those first 18 verses is fleshed out in the remainder of the gospel. Which includes the necessity to view this gospel through the lens of verse 14 of chapter 1, which says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Never, ever forget, as we look at the gospel of John, Jesus is the father's glory revealed. You want to know God? You want to know God the Father? Well, Jesus is the Father's glory revealed. Secondly, and applicably, particularly to our passage this morning, is that of contrast. Contrast was also expressed in the prologue. Contrast that John opened with in chapter 1, light and darkness. Receiving and rejecting. Even the law of Moses, well, the law coming from Moses and the Grace of God coming from Jesus. Also, no one has seen God, but until Jesus had come, no one had seen God. And then Jesus comes and reveals who God is. So there's a lot of contrast. And here in our passage is the first of what will be several contrasts of unbelief and belief, true faith and false faith here in the gospel. And so John is really keeping on purpose here. As he comes out of the prologue and continues to display the transforming glory of Jesus for us to behold, he is also taking aim at the heart issue when it comes to salvation. And that is, true salvation only comes from God. It only comes from God through the means of genuine faith. Faith doesn't save you. Faith is the means by which we are connected to God. And to do that, to highlight the necessity of that, John has to highlight now non-genuine faith. And we see that first, and it serves as our first heading, as I said, number one, an inadequate faith. In verse 23 to the beginning of verse 24. It's here we see the solemn severity of unbelief clothed in false profession. Look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Jesus was inside the temple for Passover. He was keeping the Passover. He kept the law He kept the law so as to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law that you and I could never keep, that we would be clothed in a perfect righteousness. And after three days of Passover was a week-long festival called the Festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was during this week at this festival that Jesus, we're told in verse 23, performed many, many Miracles. Remember, John calls them signs, only ever calls them signs in this gospel because he is showing that they are signifying and showing forth something, namely the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, too, that John says in the very last verse of this gospel, John chapter 21, verse 25, that there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem for a week, and he is just performing sign after sign after sign. And there are many people witnessing these miraculous acts, and no doubt curiosity is increasing. Because remember, Jesus, after all, he had just performed the miraculous sign of clearing the temple out of its operations as a completely unknown person to them. He did it all on his own with a tiny little whip. He didn't need an army or a SWAT team. He just went in, cleared the entire temple out without even engaging the Roman soldiers who, you remember, stood guard in a tower over watching all the temple operations. So the people would have been incredibly curious as to who this was and astonished 
as he performed these signs during that week which they observed. And as a result, the middle of verse 23 tells us, many believed in his name. We would commonly say to that, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There is much rejoicing in heaven. Awesome. Yet when you look at verse 24, the first half of it, it's quite shocking, quite astonishing. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. And so hang on a second. The people were believing in him, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. What exactly does that mean? Well, we need to consider the words that are used here for the word believe in verse 23. Many believed in his name and the word for entrusting in verse 24 are from the same Greek word, the exact same word. Both are pistuio, which means to believe. And so oddly enough, what's, what God is saying here in his word right now, and John is using a play on words, is really to emphasize is that Jesus did not believe their believing. Jesus was not believing their believing. And so what we're immediately faced with here is that there is indeed a faith. There is indeed a belief that Jesus does not accept. There is a belief in Jesus that is not met with Jesus' approval. Now we know the heartbeat, don't we, of the great shepherd. We know that he would never, ever reject one of his sheep. Who even with the mildest of belief or the most simplest of trust. He would never do that. Our Lord, the one who said in Matthew 19 verse 14, let the children come unto me. Do not prevent them from coming unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven and such is salvation. Jesus is illustrating there in Matthew 19, illustrating that believers come to Christ, people must come to Christ in the most infantile, in the most simple and reliant of ways. And so when Jesus does what he does here in our passage, it is evident that these people are not in possession of true faith. They are not coming like children in their posture. They've not become like those of which John wrote about back in chapter 1 verse 12 as those who received him and thus become the children of God. Instead, they are coming, coming entirely different. Now, this is a scary consideration to make. It's not altogether, as I said at the very beginning, the most pleasant thing to consider. And yet, Scripture is replete with examples and warnings of such a thing. It is not my desire, not my prayer, hasn't been my prayer all week or intention to burden the conscience of the believer here this morning. In fact, I hope that your assurance is actually strengthened by what we look at this morning. And yet at the same time, there are people sitting here this morning who profess to believe but Jesus doesn't believe they're believing. He is not entrusting himself to them. He's not believing in them. And you know, this really highlights the truth of genuine salvation. And what I mean by that is this, we are not saved until Jesus has entrusted himself to us. What I mean by that is that it's not that we need to convince Jesus. We don't need to convince Jesus in order to be saved. That's not how this works. But really, due to generations now, decades, Centuries even of evangelism and global mission and preaching that instructs the mind of people to believe that mankind determines their own destiny 
we have failed in this contemporary and current era to grasp what has always been the belief of the church, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we've been so indoctrinated to believe that Christians become Christians solely by their believing. And this has corrupted the gospel. This has hindered the truth. And this has made a mockery of grace. A mockery of grace. And caused countless numbers of people to superficially receive and then strongly reject the most precious name that is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because with that kind of approach, with preaching and engaging and doing global mission and teaching and discipling and proclaiming the gospel in such a way where you just are telling people that they determine their own destiny. It breeds a coddling and a comforting of false brethren. It creates them and it coddles them. False brethren is a term used in Scripture. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't know how it's already quarter to 11. Man, I'm scared. Paul here in the midst of 2 Corinthians is explaining several things to the church at Corinth. And he's he's instructed them in this chapter alone on several fronts. And in verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11... He really is mocking them. He mocks them for their tolerance of error. Look at verse 19. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you, tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. There were false prophets showing up in Corinth and teaching error and the people were just foolishly being led astray and Paul is rebuking them for it he's telling them that they ought to be those who listen to the voice of the good shepherd the Lord Jesus and not be so easily led astray and after that lesson Paul then gives another lesson beginning in verse 26 he says I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers dangers from robbers dangers from my countrymen dangers from the gentiles dangers in the city dangers in the wilderness dangers on the sea dangers there it is among false brethren The term false brethren is a single word in the Greek a compound word in the Greek pseudo pseudodelphoi pseudodelphoi you can hear two words in that. Pseudo means face or uh, false or fake. And Adelphos from Philadelphia, right? And what is Philadelphia known as? The city of what? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. So the word means fake brothers. False brethren. False believers. Those who profess to believe in Jesus but do not possess Jesus. The word is used again, and it's the only time it's used in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul speaks of the dangers of false brethren, pseudodelphoi, who enter into the church, who live their life in the church. And so there are those who are inside the church who are pseudo believers. They look and sound like the genuine article, but they are false, unconverted. Why is that? What leads to that? Well, we have many examples in the New Testament that we could go to, literally. Uh, Demas is one. Demas was with Paul in gospel ministry for years. And then we read in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.10 that Demas loved the present world and then departed into that world, abandoned the faith, and walked away completely, thus evidencing false 
conversion. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have what? Stayed among us. Diotrephes is another. John the Apostle wrote of him in his third epistle, highlighting there that Diotrephes loved to be the most prominent one. He loved to be first. He refused to welcome true apostles like Paul into the church and John. He regularly spread gossip about the apostles, about truth teachers, men of God. He often withheld kindness and hospitality from other believers. And he excommunicated those who didn't agree with his ways and came against his ways. Not the kind of church leader you ever want. Unconverted church leaders are especially dangerous. Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander are others, all members of the church at Ephesus, all inside the church there. We're told that all of them, were told by Paul in his letters to Timothy, rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. We could go on and on. The epistles basically all deal with a fake kind of Christianity. But there is one example I want to highlight, which really helps us see what it is that fake believers, pseudo-Adelphoi, false brethren, are marked by. So turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Back in Acts chapter 6, we read about two men who were selected as some of the first deacons in the church, Stephen and Philip. Part of their role was to care for widows, to take care of the daily practical needs and overlook those practical matters, but they were also evangelistic, also evangelistic. They preached the gospel as they went about their life. Stephen, you know, was so evangelistic, they stoned him to death. We read about that at the end of Acts chapter 7. And as we enter Acts chapter 8, it's Philip who takes off where Stephen left. And he goes into the city of Samaria. And he's preaching there to large crowds of people. Look at verse 6. The crowds, the crowds with one accord. We saw verse 6. We looked in verse 6 there that the crowds were of one accord. They were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And as they heard and saw, look at that. The signs which he was performing. Look at verse 8. There was much rejoicing in that city. Much rejoicing. And then verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon. Who was formerly practicing magic in the city. And astonishing the people of Samaria. Claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, verse 11, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Simon had a high view of himself. The people did too. This man is what is called the great power of God. That is a term for deity. They worshipped him, basically. In fact, in Rome at the time stood a statue that said, Semini Sanco Deo, which translated means Simon, holy God. But then Philip arrives in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Philip's preaching the good news about the kingdom, the name of Jesus, baptisms are happening. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. And it says there, continued on with Philip. And look at the end of verse 13. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Constantly amazed. Sounds like the people in John 2. Many believed in his, in his name. They were amazed at the signs. Remember, Simon, as we just read, was into tricks and magic and astonishing people. In fact... He was obviously immensely accomplished at doing that himself. He'd done so, according to verse 11, it said, for a very long time. But I need you to understand that Simon wasn't just doing card tricks. 
and sleight of hand tricks. This was deeply satanic. Deeply satanic. It was sorcery that Simon was involved in. The word for magic there and magic arts is the word for sorcery. Greek word magia. The word itself means to convey the ideas of spells that harness the occult. That harness the occult and evil forces to produce effects. He wasn't just a card trickman here. He was deep into the occult, deep into spells and practicing sorcery. And sorcery and those kind of things has as its aim to discredit the truth of God. And so as he observes the signs and miraculous wonders performed by Philip, he is enthralled. Up until Philip had come to town, he was the man in town, astonishing and enthralling people. And so with all this hype turning to Philip, Simon follows with intrigue. He follows and he even goes through the act of baptism. Yeah, I want to keep seeing this. I actually want to be a part of this. We'll learn in a moment. And he does everything that's required of him externally. Is he following because he believes in Jesus as the Messiah? Or is he following Philip because he's awestruck by the signs and wonders? Verse 13 tells us that he was constantly amazed by the signs. And then in verse 14, the apostles arrive, Peter and John. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. You have to remember that Samaria is Gentile country. Word had gotten out that the gospel was now saving the different ethnicities in the world. It began to spread. And so Peter and John, they come to see. And upon seeing that people are truly being converted, they begin to lay hands on people. And there's this visible expression here as the Spirit comes for the first time. This is a unique time in the life of the church. It's a powerful thing. And Simon sees it. And he wants in. He's followed Philip because of the signs. He's always been about the signs. And the high regard he receives from the other people, he's always been about that for the astonishing things that he's done. And then I believe verses 18 and 19 really begin to answer the question that I asked earlier of of who Simon has as the object or what Simon has as the object of his desire. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He offered them money. He's willing to buy in to this display of power. Verse 19, look there, is what he said. Give this authority to me as well, and I will lay my hands as well. He wants in on the show. He's always been about the show. And now look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, very important, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. There it is. The gift of God. It's not the gift of laying on hands. It's the gift of salvation. Verse 21. You have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Apostolic wholesale declaration. You have no part in this matter. What matter? The matter of the saving grace of God being poured out on the Gentile. Your heart is not right. Your heart is still corrupt. Your heart is still dead in sin. What do you do with a person like this? Verse 22. Peter says, repent of your wickedness. Repent of your wickedness. 
and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Look, they are too strong a words to simply just be referring to the laying on of hands. That is wholesale condemnation towards having no part in the saving grace of God. Peter is saying, turn from this wickedness of appearing outwardly as a believer, having ticked all the boxes, but inwardly you're simply just astonished by the signs. Your desire, your affection, your treasure is to just be another sign worker, not a submissive servant. Be contrite over your sin and ask for forgiveness, Peter says to him. Ask for forgiveness unto salvation, that you may have part in the saving grace of God. Verse 23, more precise now assessment from Peter, apostolic assessment. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and look at this, and in the bondage of iniquity. You are bitter and you are enslaved to sin. There hasn't been... True faith, true conversion take place. There has not been the impact of saving grace upon your life. He has come for the show and the need to be a play actor in it. Not for the Savior and the longing to be a servant of His. Look what Simon didn't do in verse 24. And I say that because what he does do further evidences that he never once believed under salvation, but only had believed so as to remain what he'd always claimed. And what was that? To be someone great. To be someone great. Look at verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Zero acknowledgement. Zero confession. It had only ever been about self for Simon. It had never been about sin and the Savior for Simon. You see, Simon serves as this grand and horrific illustration of the false believer. And there are some things that mark him and mark every false believer in the church today. Number one, pride stands in the gap. This was the core issue for Simon. It's the core issue for any false believer. Simon wanted to go on as one with good reputation as someone great. His treasure was that and not Christ. Number two, he along with Simon, along with all other false believers, have a skewed view of true salvation. Everything, what I mean by that is everything is externally based. Simon did what he needed to do. That is the act of baptism, the act of following. He did everything he needed to do so as to remain within reach, get this, of becoming a better person. A better person. A better person not for God, but a better person for himself and the applaud of others. That is a chief hallmark of any false believer. Number three, another chief mark is Simon and any false believer was using God to fulfill his temporary desires. And that's what marks all false believers like Simon, is they're only temporary. They're only temporary because as long as they can have their temporary desires met, they are present. And as soon as those temporary desires are no longer meant, met, they're gone. Jesus spoke a lot about this temporary aspect in Mark chapter 4. I were, we were originally going to go there, but for the sake of time, we won't. Jesus in Mark chapter 4 is talking about four different types of soil. Hard ground, rocky soil, thorny soil, and then good soil. Three soils, and then one utterly distinct and different soil. Four soils. The first soil, the first response to the seed that's sown, we see, is in the form of a path falls on the roadside. You remember that? That seed doesn't even touch the soil. It doesn't penetrate at all. No response at all. It just sits upon the top of the rock, the road, and it's snatched away. We tell, we're told by Jesus, by Satan. And that's illustrating immediate hostility to Christ. That's just no profession at all. 
paganism, totally done. That's the first one. The second seed is the seed we see as the rocky soil. First was the road, now there's the rocky soil. Jesus says in a similar way that that just falls down. But the response ultimately, just after a little bit longer, is the same as on the roadside. Why? Because they hear the word, they receive it with joy, Jesus says there. They believe it to be a means to an end. That's how I can become a better person for myself. Achieve their dreams, achieve their desires. But there's no root, Jesus said. No root that takes place. No roots of true turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus. There's a little joy in the heart, but still a big amount of rejection in the heart that will eventually be made evident. Again, because it's all about temporary desire. When the temporary desire, whatever it may be, wealth, health, peace, esteem, stability, whatever it may be, when that's gone, they're gone. When, and we see in verse 17, I have to turn there, in verse 17 of Mark 4, it says... They have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Whenever affliction or some type of difficulty arises, they're gone. Temporary treasure is taken away. Their faith was never true. When things get hard, and they do get hard, only true faith endures. Why? Why does only true faith endure? Because only true faith has as its object Christ. All other faith has as its object temporary desires and satisfaction from those temporary desires. Earthly esteem and the like. In fact, the word for fall away back there in Mark 4 is from where we get the word scandalize from. Scandalize. When these people profess Christ and then fall away, they make a scandal out of Jesus and the grace of God. The third response to the seed we see is the thorny soil. You know this. That's the soil with weeds all through it. Jesus says that's an illustration for the woo and the worries of the world, the riches and the rough times. There is this hearing of the gospel. There's a visible response to the gospel. There's even evidence of what appears to be true conversion, true salvation. But then when three things arrive, Jesus says, the worries of the world, the riches of the world, and the desires of the world, they then choke out the very life of a person and then reveal that their fault, their faith was false. Then there's the last response. You know that. The soil which Jesus calls the good soil. In stark contrast to the other soils. It had been plowed, toiled, prepared. That illustrates that the person who hears the word of God, who hears the gospel, the message of peace with God and union with Christ by faith, looks at it and accepts it, Jesus says. Jesus then says that kind of faith brings forth fruit, ongoing and increasing fruit. Fruit is obviously the evidence of our true conversion. It's not the grounds of our conversion. I need to say that because true believers, when weighing up what false conversion looks like, can begin to lack assurance of salvation. And I'll say to every dear believer here, marked, your life is marked by, not perfection, but by faithfulness. Never ever look, dear believer, at your fruit as the grounds of your salvation. Don't do that. Sure, there must be evidences, and if there aren't evidences of your salvation, then examine yourselves, but never ever look at your fruit as the grounds, your obedience as the grounds of your salvation. The foundation and grounds of your salvation, believer, is not your obedience, which is subjective and fluctuating. 
The grounds and foundation of your salvation is the objective and finished work of Jesus Christ, both in his living and his dying on the cross for your behalf. That's the grounds. The believer, you've got to rest in that. Rest in Christ. Rest in his work on your behalf. Don't have faith in your faith or faith in your obedience, but have faith in the objective work of Christ. The false believer has no rest but must examine themselves and flee to Christ. And so false faith is marked by a desire for something else other than Jesus, even all while treating Jesus as the tool to achieve that desire. It's an an attraction to Jesus as one who can clean up your life, heal your diseases, give you stability in life, Give you credibility, give you purpose, give you aim, give you drive, give you an identity. There's a host of reasons. And here's one that I came across in my study this week that you may not have thought of. As the world gets crazier and plummets at breakneck speed away from God and morality, there's some who see the error of the world's ways and they come to Jesus out of a spirit of rebellion. They want to be countercultural. And they see this people moving in one direction, opposite to a world that's moving in the other direction. And they want to come out of a desire simply to be against the grain, simply to stand for something that's contrary to the world. There's nothing about the holiness of God, the hatred of sin, the recognition of the need of forgiveness, just as being well said, a desire to throw off the norm. Many false believers. Back to John 2 now, and then we'll wrap up that's an inadequate faith we'll very briefly consider an adequate savior jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them why for he knew all men he didn't need anyone to testify about him because he knew what was in man it's here we see the satisfactory character and essence of our savior and what i mean by that is The fact that Jesus knows all people, the very depths of them inside and out, which is the very basis for his rejection of them, of these people here in our passage, who had a pseudo-belief, it's a clear display of his divinity, his deity. You say, how do you know that for certain? I want you to listen to a passage like 1 Kings 8, verse 39. It's speaking of Yahweh, the one true God. It says this, For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Remember, Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. No one is excluded from his omniscience, his knowledge. Jesus could look at Judas and see unbelief and betrayal inside Judas. He could look at Nathaniel and see true belief and an honest desire to trust him and obey him. And have Jesus as his desire and treasure, not the outward benefits of Jesus. And the fact that he knows all truth about all things means that justice will be perfect, right? All things will be made right, all superficiality will be exposed. And because he knows all means for the true child of God here this morning, the one who has trusted and rested in the finished work of Christ on their behalf and submitted to his lordship over their life, because he knows you and me inside and out, And he knows all our fears. He knows all our weaknesses. He knows all our worries. He knows all our anxieties. He knows all our struggles. He knows all our sinful failures, even the ones we committed this morning. He knows all of that. And he still loves you and I the same. That's a beautiful thing. For the one to whom he is saved by grace alone and is adopted into his household to be one of his beloved children. He loves us all the same. Is he not worthy to be worshipped? And adored. And loved. And to no longer live for ourselves, but for him. If you need a little motivation to do that, consider more about how much he knows you and me inside out. And he loves us the same. 
The same one who knows every part of us. The pleasing and the not so pleasing and the altogether incredibly not pleasing. He loves us all the same. How shall we live in light of these truths? First, to the Christian, we're moved to live a life of gratitude. We've been grace gifted, true faith by God's abundant grace. It was not your believing that determined your destiny. It was not your believing that determined your destiny. How can you say that with such authority and such confidence, you say, Matthew? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Allow that to fill your heart and mind. Second to the non-Christian here. Live in fear for your next breath. Live in fear for your next breath. Fear for your soul this day. And if you rise again tomorrow morning, which you may not, but if you rise again tomorrow morning, make not a mockery of God any longer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, The activity of Satan is with all power and lying signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Come not seeking something from Jesus, come seeking to know Jesus, and He will prove Himself to be ever so kind to you. William Grimshaw entered into pastoral ministry in 1731. Every Sunday he performed his duties. Prayers were read, sermons were preached. After the death of his wife, he began to earnestly seek for the power of sin, to, to seek to break the power of sin in his life. He fasted, he kept diaries of the sins, and he prayed prayers of confessions all day long. He was increasingly confronted with the vileness of his sin and the bitterness of his sin, but he just couldn't get anywhere. And his utter inability to set himself right with God overwhelmed him so much that until one day, while visiting a friend, he came across a book by the Puritan John Owen on justification by faith alone. And then he recounts having understood grace and faith as the sole means of salvation with the following words. He said this, I was now willing to renounce myself, every degree of fancied merit and ability. And I was now ready to embrace Christ only for my all in all. Oh, what light and comfort did I enjoy in my own soul and what taste of the pardoning love of God. End quote. We're done. But just turn with me to chapter 21. Sunday school is going to be upset with you and I, Mike. <laughs> Look at verse... 15 of John 21. So when they'd finished breakfast, some of you are really hungry right now. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? More than these. And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The omniscience of Jesus looks inside the very heart of a true child of God. One who had just denied him three times. One who, like you and I, fails at times. 
And he looks inside a true child who stumbled and tripped. And he says, then tend my sheep. Serve my sheep. Look out for one another. Care for one another. Child of God, God knows you inside out. He knows all things. Rest in that. If you're here and any marks of these false professors are true of you, we pray for you right now that you might no longer use Jesus as a means to an end, but you would come to the end of yourself and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we say thank you for this opportunity. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us this day. Get great glory for yourself through sanctifying the saints and saving lost sinners that all